Community Cats podcast. Ready? Let's go. Welcome to the Community Cats podcast. I am your host, Stacey LeBaron. I've been involved helping homeless cats for over 20 years with the Merrimack River Feline Rescue Society. The goal of this podcast is to expose you to amazing people who are improving the lives of cats. I hope these interviews will help you learn how you can turn your passion for cats into action. Today, we're speaking with Brad Shear. Brad has been working in animal welfare for 20 years. He started at a local shelter in a small city in Colorado and then moved to New York City, where he managed the largest of New York City's three municipal animal shelters. He returned to Colorado for a few years and then moved to Atlanta, where he was the director of operations for the Atlanta Humane Society. He has been the CEO of the Mohawk Hudson Humane Society for 10 years. When he started in animal welfare, TNR was not widespread and actually thought of as cruel by much of the people working in shelters. Over the years, with better understanding of the real lives of cats in our communities, the industry has changed. He was not always a supporter of modern methods of working with community cats, but had his own changes and his own way of thinking and a revelation about how we should be working with cats. Brad, I'd like to welcome you to the show. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. Brad, how did you discover your passion for animals and your interest in getting involved in animal welfare? I grew up in New York City. So when I was growing up, we had just about every small animal that can fit in an apartment, including Yorkies and and cats. And so I just grew up loving animals. And uh, unlike kids today, I really didn't have a consciousness of the sheltering system. We see so many kids coming to us now who want to work in animal shelters and want to be involved. And I guess when I was a kid, that consciousness wasn't there, probably because of the nature of the way shelters were that that long ago. But I always just had a, a love for animals. And when I went to Colorado, I ended up working in private industry for a while and just wasn't happy and wanted to really find something that would have an impact on the community and do something at the end of the day that I really cared about and felt like I made a difference. So when a, a job became available working at the local animal shelter, I decided to take a, a big pay cut and a big risk and just say, I got to do something that I really love doing and started working at the front desk at the, uh, actually the Humane Society of Boulder Valley in Colorado and worked my way through. They hired, they hired me because I was involved in training for customer service in my previous job. And they, if you think 20 years ago, really were one of the first to start thinking, we need to improve customer service in animal shelters because while we take great care of animals or try to, we need to take care of people because it's the people who come and adopt the animals. And 20 years ago, that was a new way of thinking, if you can believe it. So I was brought in to work on improving customer service of care of people in the organization and actually started a month after a guy you may know named uh, Jackson Galaxy, who uh, and we worked together for, for a couple of years and he took a different path than I did. Yeah, it's actually for some of our listeners, we may be seeing Jackson Galaxy on the Community Cats podcast coming up in the future soon. So this is ironic. I didn't even know that you had worked with him. He's a great guy, and you will enjoy your conversation with him. We're still still good friends. Some of the stories that he had from working in Boulder, I read his his book, Cat Daddy, and uh, so it was a, a very interesting story. And it is interesting, as we both mentioned back 20 years ago, when people were like, oh, I'm here because I only like animals, and I don't really like dealing with people that often. And 
little did we know how important it would be that we need people that enjoy animals as well as enjoy working with people. And it sounds like you were on the cutting edge of that movement. That's right. We don't hire those people anymore who we don't have a job that involves just working with animals and not working with people. You really need to care for both. It is the way people and animals come together that's so important to our organization and to being successful. So then it sounds like you took a big leap from Colorado and got thrown into New York City's one of their animal shelters there. What was that like? It was quite a change. We were taking in about 30,000 animals a year at that point. There were a large number being euthanized. We did some very simple things in my shelter to increase adoptions, which again were just about how people were taken care of. There were people coming in to the shelter to adopt and leaving without animals. And we had a lot to do to fix that. So during my relatively short time there, which was about a year, we increased adoptions by uh, about 45%. And that was the beginning of New York City starting to see a real transformation. That's when the Mayor's Alliance was just getting started. And now you're seeing you know, much better outcome. You're still, unfortunately, the same physical shelter, uh, but you're starting. that was the beginning of starting to see much better outcomes for animals. And then you uh, hopped down to Atlanta a little bit. What was it like down there? Well, the Atlanta Humane Society itself is a limited admission shelter or had become one about a year before I got there. It is huge, has tremendous resources, has a large uh, veterinary hospital that cares for the pets of low-income clients and has tremendous adoption resources. But there is a huge population of animals in the city, and even more so when you get outside the perimeter, if you, the perimeter is sort of the, the rim around Atlanta. And when you get outside the perimeter of Atlanta, you see uh, just one county after another with small county shelters really struggling, uh, taking in enormous numbers of animals and are overwhelmed by those numbers, can't find enough homes for them. But again, that the Atlanta, they've built a second shelter that's an adoption center in the north end of the city and has become a tremendous resource, I think, for everyone around them. They sort of are the place where all these other shelters that are overwhelmed can bring animals to, either have them adopted out by the Humane Society or they now have a program to transport animals up north. They bought a vehicle to move them. So again, I was sort of at the very beginning of that transformation when they were the municipal shelter and ended up in a similar situation is the San Francisco where there was a separate municipal shelter and then the nonprofit working together. But the spay and neuter is not nearly as ubiquitous as it is in the Northeast. They're, they're certainly behind in terms of numbers when you compare them to where I am now. And now you are back in New York State and you've been there for 10 years. Can you tell me a little bit about the Mohawk Hudson Humane Society? So we are in the capital region of New York State, which is the Albany is the capital of New York. We are the SPCA, which means we do cruelty investigation for Albany and Rensselaer counties. And we're the largest shelter in the region. We take in about 6,000 animals a year through our shelter program. We spay and neuter about 3,500 animals a year for the public. And we have our main location, which is in Menans, New York, which is a suburb of the city of Albany. We have what's called an everyday adoption center inside a PetSmart store. We're about 2,000 square feet inside a PetSmart store for dog and cat adoptions. Then about 45 minutes north of us in Saratoga County, we have a spay and neuter clinic and small cat adoption center. And that is the only full-time operating spay and neuter clinic from there up to the Canadian border. So you could drive about 
uh, two and a half hours north, then you won't find another full-time operating clinic. So we discovered when we moved in there that there are people driving an hour away to get low-cost care for their for their pets. And we have uh, we are bringing in we're we're very successful at adoptions, and so we're bringing in dogs from other parts of the country. We're bringing cats from other shelters nearby to adopt. We have a program with for domestic violence victims so that if they go into a domestic violence shelter, we can care for their pets. It's most more cats than other pets that we get that way. And they will stay in, uh, in our shelter for an average of about three or four months. I could go on. <laughs> it sounds like long. you name it, you do it. So, and that's great. That's what you have to do. I mean, we have this toolkit for success and you have some interesting programs. Uh, you have a star program where we, within your foster care system. And so maybe if we can touch upon that and then maybe we'll, we'll switch and talk a little bit about sort of the TNR evolution and how that happened for you. STAR stands for Steps to Adoption Readiness. And that has a dual meaning because it is a partnership with our sheriff's department, the Sheriff's Star. We have, for many years, as a lot of organizations have, have housed dogs in the jail. So the dogs go and stay for six weeks. They go through a training program and they come back to us well-trained and, and more easily adoptable. What we started about a year ago now was housing cats in the jail. So we foster about a thousand animals a year, mostly cats. And most of those cats are kittens that aren't old enough to be adopted. Uh, And like most organizations, we're always struggling to find enough foster homes. And surprisingly, the most difficult to place in foster homes are the mothers who have kittens, mostly because our foster homes have cats and their adult cats tend to get upset when they know, even if they don't come in contact, they know there's another adult cat in the house and they don't they respond better to just having kittens in the house. So we, we were challenged to find places to put the moms who had kittens, even though you'd think those are the easiest to take care of. So we talked to the sheriff who, when we, when we started the program with the dogs, he said, just don't bring me a bunch of pit bulls. And the first dogs we brought were pit bulls and they did great. And now he has changed his tune about that. <laughs> but then he said, the dogs are good, but just don't bring me cats. And then we talked them into the cats. So the cats are housed and if you, you think about the way modern jails are, they're actually behind glass instead of behind bars. So they can stay inside these glassed-in cells. And the everyone in our county jail has a job. So your job might be to do dishes, to do laundry. It might be picking up trash on the side of the road. The job for these inmates is to take care of the cat. So they are responsible for doing everything to take care of the cats. And from the cat's perspective, they think it's great because they have somebody with them 24 hours a day. And these cats come back and the kittens so well socialized. They just love everybody. They're sleeping with <laughs> with the inmates. They're getting played with all the time. These are some of the happiest, best taken care of cats you can imagine. Our, our average foster home is fantastic. They're very generous, wonderful people, but they have jobs and they go to work. And <laughs> this program is great for us in terms of the cats, but also has been fantastic for the inmates. The jail staff have told us that it just changes the feel of the whole place to know their animals there. The corrections officers go in and want to pet the animals. So there's some interaction with the inmates and COs that's different than normal. The inmates are on their best behavior because if they do anything wrong, they get kicked out of the program. And it's much better to have the job of taking care of a cat than it is scrubbing the floor. So uh, they're very happy to be in there, and the inmates who aren't in there want to get in there. 
it's really been a win-win for everyone. It's opened up new opportunities for us. Uh, and, you know, we're, we're hoping that more organizations start thinking about doing something similar. It, it sounds fantastic. And I think even to expand it from the moms and kittens, I think the semi-feral kittens could really benefit from that environment too. Yeah, absolutely. We have uh, we've had semi-feral kittens in there. It just depends on who we are. Whatever cats we're having the most difficulty finding a regular foster home for, and feral kittens are often that, then we tend to place in the jail because the inmates don't have a choice. <laughs> as long as it's acceptable to the to the staff, we we have a commitment that we're not we're going to try to avoid putting any any animals in there that we think are likely to bite anyone or scratch. And obviously, we can't we can't put them at risk. Are you new to the Community Cats podcast? Don't know what to listen to first? Feel free to check out the listening module tab where we have grouped shows together by topic so you can listen to a bunch of shows around the same topic. Just click on the listening module tab at www.communitycatspodcast.com and enjoy learning about community cats. <coughs> Support Boston's Gifford Cat Shelter Spring Soiree and Silent Auction on April 22nd from 6 to 9 p.m. at the Needham Town Hall. There will be fun food and festivities. For more information, go to GiffordSpringSoiree.org or go to GiffordCatsShelter.org. So in our conversation before we started the interview, we had a bit of a chat about how your thoughts about Trap New to Return have evolved over time. And I was wondering if you could share a bit about that story with our listeners. Yes. Yeah, so, uh, 20 years ago, when I started in animal sheltering, there were very few few organizations doing TNR. I think, I know it's been happening since the late 60s, but on a large scale in well-established shelters, it was 20 years ago, it was unusual. And most people in this well-established shelter community would actually would say things like, well, they're suffering because they can't find enough food, they can't find enough water, they're out in the cold, they're out in the heat. We have to be focused on on whether they're suffering, whether they're well cared for more than whether they're alive or not. And so it was very common. And I was kind of you know, raised up in this community, I guess you could say, to say there's, we do the best we can, but there's no choice when you get a feral cat in, you just have to have to euthanize them. And that was the way that I, the majority of shelters in the United States thought. And over time, we started getting some data some information about whether TNR actually works. And there are many examples of it actually working to start reducing populations. It, it hasn't been well publicized, but there's a, a woman named Barbara Carr who used to run the SPCA serving Erie County, which is in Buffalo, who I know well, we have a good relationship with. She's since retired, but they started doing complete physical exams on every cat that came in, no matter how it came in. So traditionally, if you got a feral cat, you put them in a cage, you try to minimize contact with them, uh, you try not to touch them, but they would tranquilize these cats and they could do a physical exam. And what they found was that the community cats, the ones that had feral behaviors, were actually physically some of the healthiest. And that they had owner-surrendered cats that were in much worse physical condition than some of these cats. The cats have really adapted. They're coming out. Yes, Buffalo, more than us, has very harsh winters, but every spring they're coming out healthy enough to reproduce and healthy enough to continue. The populations are growing, which seems to indicate that they're not suffering so much that they can't survive. And we don't think of other animals who live outside as 
as suffering. So they've, cats are very adaptable. So while I was going through this whole thought process and sort of gathering data and thinking, well, maybe we're not, maybe we're, we're handling this the wrong way, my window from my office on the second floor looks out over the parking lot towards our admitting building. And one day I was looking out the window and I saw a truck that said exterminator on it. And later in the day, I went down to, and said to the staff, why, why do we have an exterminator here? And they said, well, he comes in all the time. He brings us trapped cats that he's trapped. And I said, I don't, I don't understand. What do you mean he brings us trapped cats? And they said, well, when somebody has a feral cat, they call him and he brings them to us and pays us to euthanize them. And I said, you know, we are not here to be exterminators. That's not who our community partners are. That's not the right fit for us. And while I was having this slow uh, transition in my head, I think that strong visual in my face really triggered me starting to think, this is the way the community sees cats, is that there's somebody to call an exterminator for. And it seems like we should be leading the way in the opposite direction, that you should not be thinking of cats as something that needs to be exterminated. And if you do, we shouldn't be participating in, in that action. the extermination, right? Nobody says that this organization or any humane organization should be exterminators. So we very quickly got away from that and said, we're not just going to take in cats that are trapped and are feral. We're going to look to reroute them to TNR and put them back where they came from. And for the people who don't like that approach, they're going to have to find a, a way on their own, but we're not participating in there, just removing them for euthanasia. So we've big portion of our spay and neuter program is we, we don't ourselves do the trapping, but we do help service organizations that do through our spay and neuter program and then reroute people who have trapped cats. First, encourage people who are thinking about trapping cats to know what they're going to do once the cat is in the trap. Because the days of just bringing them to the shelter and not thinking about what's going to happen to them are, are over in our community. So we try to partner people before they start that with groups who will show them the right way to, to trap and route them through either our spay neuter program or one of the others in the community. I'm just wondering, you had this aha moment here about TNR and basically return to field. And I'm wondering if you had a conversation with another CEO of another humane society that maybe hadn't hit their aha moment yet. And I want to thank you for sharing that story. What would you recommend? You'd say, look at the data. How hard was it to make the change? Was it challenging, not challenging? Maybe to give some guidance to another head of an organization that maybe hasn't sort of seen that path ahead yet. So to make the change, I don't feel like it was that difficult internally. Nobody on the staff enjoyed having to handle feral cats in a kennel. No one wanted to euthanize them. Nobody really thought that this was a good thing to do, but most of them just didn't have another way. So internally, the transition was not difficult other than we had to think about how to adequately provision spay and neuter resources. We wanted to make sure that we didn't just cut people off and say, well, there are no options. We wanted to make sure that the spay and neuter resources were available to take over for what was just a removal. Uh, so that took a little work as well as trying to strengthen relationships with organizations that were currently doing TNR and talk to them about whether we could refer people to them or send people directly to them uh, for more education. We don't feel like we have to be all things to all people. You know, I have had 
conversations with colleagues who are not there yet. And I think there's a lot of good data there. We are sometimes, I think, like any cause, the cause can be hurt by people who are not doing the right thing. And, well, for example, one group I talked to about possibly partnering and saying, well, if somebody brings us a cat in a trap that's feral, they were willing to take that cat and either relocate it or put it back where it came from. And the first time someone came in to get one of those cats, he said, well, it's a stretch for me because I've got 20 feral cats living in my basement already. And we said, well, that's not really what we talk about. <laughs> you know, that, so we've got to have more discussions. We've got to try to get people on both sides to do the right thing. But the approach, there are certainly people who are coming with a, to, to bludgeon people with the idea that you've got to change your ways. But I think that the, the best approach for me was to talk to another colleague, in this case, Barbara from, from Buffalo, who had really looked into this, as I have now, looked at the data and said, and said to me very clearly, hey, are you really seeing these cats suffering? And, and we're, we're not. When we started looking at each individual animal as it came in, Sure, there are some that are in very bad medical condition, and it could be that euthanasia is right for some small portion of them. Usually, it's a pretty small portion, but the snow is melting here, and we're not finding dead cats under the snow. What we're finding is pregnant cats <laughs> and, and cats that are having kittens. It just takes getting people to step back a little bit and hear from other people who have done the same thing. And I try to do that as much as, you, as I can. I think in the Northeast, at least, we're seeing fewer and fewer organizations that are just rounding them up and euthanizing them, although there are people who want that. Uh, there are fewer and fewer organizations like ours that are willing to participate in that. So, uh, Brad, looking ahead 10 or 15 years, what do you think life will be like for community cats in your region as well as even nationally? I think we're going to start seeing more acceptance of this method of managing cats, which is to trap them, spay, neuter, and vaccinate them, and release them. We still have some traditional, especially government systems that are have concerns that I think could be valid but need to be discussed. The health department talking about whether they're vaccinated. In our case, the Department of Environmental Conservation worrying about wildlife. And while they have valid concerns, I don't think what they've heard yet is that our solution is a solution to their problem, too. It's not just a solution to what we perceive as the problem. It does start reducing the populations to start helping to protect wildlife. We do vaccinate animals, so we're starting to impact the concerns about rabies for the health departments. I think we have to keep working on those traditional um, systems outside of animal welfare to get better acceptance. And I, I think we'll start seeing that because there aren't a lot of choices left. As organizations like ours say, we're not going to participate in rounding up animals to euthanize them. There aren't a lot of choices for somebody to, to do something else. So I think you will see people start to come around and understand that it's okay to have a cat in your community as long as it's been spayed or neutered. So, um, Brad, if uh, folks are interested in finding out more about your organization or reaching out to you, how could they find you? Our website is mohawkhumane.org, and you can call us at 518-434-8128. Just come visit. We're in Manans, New York at 3 Oakland Avenue.
And is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners today? Just that I'm very glad that this is being discussed and it's time for us in sheltering to realize that we have to take a different approach to cats. That for a lot of my career, as I said, when I started, cats were treated like dogs. We The same strategies we use for dogs, we were using for cats. And they're very different and their adaptability is very different. And now we're seeing strategies for helping and managing populations of cats that are unique to cats instead of saying, you pick them up, you put them in a kennel, you adopt them out. It's not the same species and we have to treat them differently. So I'm very glad that we're, we're seeing that happening. Excellent. Brad, I want to thank you so much for agreeing to be a guest on my show and I hope we'll have you on in the future. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Community Cats podcast. I would really appreciate it if you would go to iTunes, leave a review of the show. It will help spread the word to help more community cats. 